okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again deep dive the intersection of constitutional law and the world of sports as we examine the legal construct of state action. Beginning with a brief refresher on the United States Constitution, we will then move to break down when federal courts are willing to hear sport organization disputes before ending with an in-depth analysis of the legal elements of standing and state action. So, if you ever wondered why Tom Brady sued the NFL for Deflategate, or why the NCAA does not have to uphold the Constitution, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to go back and I want to focus on a portion of law that we've talked about in the past but we haven't spent a lot of time on it. And that is the idea of constitutional law and within con law, the idea of something called state action. Now we've mentioned this in past podcasts, such as podcasts on the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and the 14th Amendment, where we've mentioned it in passing saying that state action is something that is required in order for a claim dealing with the Constitution to go forward. But We've only offered really cursory definitions of it. We haven't really tackled any lawsuits that have described what state action is in specifically the context of recreation and sport management. So today what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to clearly define this idea of state action and clearly define the other legal elements that are necessary in order for a case to go forward in which the plaintiff is claiming that their constitutional rights have been violated. And to do that, we need to begin, before even state action, with talking about the types of cases that the federal government will observe in relation to sports and claims of violations of constitutional or federal law, or just in general, when the courts will get involved in the field or in disputes that happen inside of sporting organizations. So to begin with, let's start with a discussion of the US Constitution. And even before that, we need to understand where the Constitution came from, what was happening around this time. Back in the late 1770s, we declare independence from Britain. We were a system of colonies under the British Empire. And as such, we had to abide by British laws and the laws that were passed not only by Parliament, but also in association with the King. And a number of those laws that were passed were restrictive to what we as individuals or humans could do. England, for example, would punish individuals at times for what they said against the government. England would force private citizens to house or quarter troops at cost to the citizen. And England forced us to pay taxes without providing us representation. And all of that led to the colonies revolting against the English government. 
As a result, we fought a war and we are granted our independence or our sovereignty and we are recognized as a distinct nation from England. Now, initially, after the war is over, we were just a loose confederation of states or a loose union of states where the state themselves, the 13 colonies which became states, the states themselves had all the power. They were the ones that were writing laws. They were the ones that were really stipulating what people could and couldn't do and providing protection from people. But very smartly, the founders recognized that each individual state by itself was very susceptible to attack from foreign governments, from England again, or maybe France or Spain, foreign powers at the time. And they recognized that each individual state by itself might not be able to protect itself or its people. But if the states came together in a union, then they would be much stronger as a country and they'd be able to defend the people much better. And so what they did, what these founders did, is they got together and they started to talk about having a federal government, a union of people or a union of these states governed at a federal level, providing oversight for the country and protecting the citizens. What they ended up putting together was our United States Constitution, which is a compilation of the powers the states decided were better administered by a national government. And the Constitution initially, the one that was initially ratified, consisted of seven articles. Article one through three stipulated the structure and the power of the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government, laying out such things as the structure for the Senate and the House of Representatives, the process of passing a bill into a law, the process of removing people from office, the requirements to run for office, such as age limits, and the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, among a number of other things. Oftentimes, you will hear people talk about things like Article 2, which stipulates the power of the executive. And in that, it states not only what the executive can do, but also stipulates that the executive has certain powers over the judicial and the legislature. And the way our government is set up is that each of these three independent branches have equal power in theory, and they have checks and balances over the other so that no one individual branch assumes too much power, putting too much control within one individual. Article 4 then speaks directly to the states, laying out the relationship between the states and the federal government. It also includes things like how new states were added into the country or still could be added into the country, and that each state must individually have a Republican form of government. Though the state was given power then to determine how exactly that Republican form of government would operate. Article 5 established the process of amending or changing the Constitution or adding to it. And then Article 6 states that the Constitution is to be the supreme law of the land. Something that I talk to students about or label really early on when I teach this as legal precedent. Article 6 establishes that the Constitution is the law of the land and that every other law has to abide by the Constitution. So that means that Congress, either at the federal or state level, cannot make a law that goes directly against the Constitution. The only way that we could do that is to amend or change the Constitution, which, as we know from Article 5, is a very laborsome and difficult process. The example I always give to students here is, 
let's say that we want to add a constitutional amendment that stipulates that there is a national speed limit of 55 miles an hour. We could do that. Article 5 lays out the process for adding that amendment in. Individual states, therefore, could not create laws or pass laws that would say, well, in our state, the speed limit is 60 miles an hour. Because that 60 mile an hour speed limit would go against the constitutional amendment, which says it has to be 55. Now, with that being said, a state could, in that instance, say in our state, the speed limit is more restrictive. In other words, the speed limit is 50 miles an hour, not 55. So Article 6 stipulates that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and that we cannot make other laws that contradict that, either at the federal or the state level, unless we offer an amendment to the Constitution which overrides previous amendments. We've seen that in cases with prohibition, where prohibition was actually added into the Constitution and then another amendment was added to repeal that amendment. And then finally, Article 7 lays out how the Constitution is to be ratified. What you might notice is missing, though, from this document and from this conversation in those seven sections are any rights of the citizens or any protections of the people from the government. In the initial aspects of negotiating this, of talking and compromising, there was conversation initially about having a specific section that talked about the protections that people have from the government, but it was decided that we will pass the Constitution with these seven articles, and then we'll go back in and we'll offer amendments. And the first 10 amendments were all offered up at the same time. These are known as the Bill of Rights, and they stipulate specifically the protections that the people have from the government. The idea of these is that at the time we went to war, things that the English government was doing to the people were allowed because there was no restriction on that government and there was no specific protections for the people. So the first 10 amendments, you can see very specifically the government stipulating that these are things that people should be allowed to do without fear of the government acting or the fear of government putting them in jail or even killing them for those acts. So we see things like the First Amendment, which guarantees that the federal government won't interfere with our rights as citizens to speak freely or to have religious freedom or to assemble or to protest. We see things like the Second Amendment saying that a well-guarded militia has the right to bear arms. Why? Because at the time, we were worried of a government taking over and removing protections from the people and we wanted to give people the power to stand up against the government, just as we had had the power to stand up against the English government. We'd see things like the right to quarter troops, uh, that we have protections from that, because again, the English government, when we were a colony, were forcing us to quarter or house troops. And so at the time, we wanted to make sure we had protection from that. So those are the first 10 amendments that are offered. And even the amendments that follow are all designed to offer protections to people from the government. So one of the first conversations we have to have before we understand specifically what constitutional amendments apply to sport and how they apply is we have to understand the situations in which the courts will actually even hear a case. Generally speaking, 
courts have traditionally offered limited judicial review for cases dealing with sports. As a rule of thumb, the courts don't like to get involved in affairs of organizations that govern sports because those organizations are voluntary, meaning my decision to operate with inside that organization or to be a member of that organization, that is my choice. And because of that, I actually have an influence over that organization and a say in it. And that organization, as a result, is self-regulating. So the courts have traditionally been very limited in the judicial review that they will offer in cases dealing in the sports sector. However, there are six specific things or areas where the courts will get involved, the federal courts will get involved and allow cases to be heard in dealing with sport. The first case where the courts will allow an individual to bring action against the organization where they will review it is if the organization has a rule or regulation that exceeds the scope of the authority of the organization. In other words, if we're dealing with an organization that is designed to regulate professional basketball, let's call it the NBA, and the NBA was to make a rule that exceeded their role in regulating professional basketball, then I could challenge that rule in court and ask the federal courts to review that rule the second and third type of situation where the courts would look at a lawsuit where I'm challenging a rule of the professional basketball league or the NFL or sport organization is if the rule either first violates constitutional rights that I'm guaranteed or if the rule violates federal law. So if a organization like the NBA were to put into place some type of rule that violated my constitutional rights or violated a federal law like Title IX or Title VII, then they might potentially review it if there is another legal element called state action that we will get to more coming up. The fourth instance where they will offer judicial review is if the league or the organization involved in sports has a rule that is arbitrary or capricious. And arbitrary or capricious just deals with this idea or this notion of a tendency for the abuse of power that an individual has. In other words, the person that's in power in professional sports leagues, we would call this the commissioner. If they were to use that power to make up rules that show that they were abusing their ability to make those rules, we could challenge it through the court system and the court system or the courts would potentially hear it. A great example of this to really drive this home is the NFL and Tom Brady. Tom Brady in Deflategate was suspended for four games for allegedly deflating footballs. But the length of the suspension was aided in part by the fact that he also destroyed his phone and didn't cooperate fully with the investigation. Now, Brady and his lawyers challenged that in the courts and actually said that the rule that was made by the NFL and the NFL's commissioner, Roger Goodell, was arbitrary and capricious. That Roger Goodell was making up the rules as he was going along, making up the length of the suspension, and as a result, he was just abusing his power instead of operating within the confines of the collective bargaining agreement and the rules that were agreed to by the players and the league. 
So that would be a case of being arbitrary and capricious. The fifth type of incidence where the court system would look at a organization involved in sports would be if the organization violates public policy because of a fraudulent or unreasonable act. And then finally, the sixth instance where they review it is if the organization breaks its own rules. And this is, again, something that happened in that Tom Brady lawsuit. He argued not only that the NFL was acting in an arbitrary and capricious manner, but also that the NFL was violating its own rules in issuing the suspension. And the idea behind the government saying, we will use the courts or we will allow the courts to hear cases if an organization breaks its own rules is we have to have, or in theory, we want to have a series of checks and balances on organizations. If organizations are just making up their own rules, abusing the power, and then breaking their rules, and we have no way to regulate that organization through our membership in it, meaning there's no way for the players or the individuals that belong to the organization to check or serve as a system of checks and balances on the organization, then the courts will step in and they will examine. So they will look to see, did the organization actually violate their own rule? If so, then the player might be in the right to file a lawsuit and accept some form of payment from it. So the courts are very reluctant. Now, when they do deem that a case falls within one of those six guidelines, then the first thing that the plaintiff has to establish is that they have standing to actually take the case forward. Having standing means that the individual filing the lawsuit, in other words, the plaintiff, has suffered an action that has caused an injury. And the key thing here to remember is that the injury doesn't have to be a physical injury. It could be an emotional injury, or it could be a monetary injury, or it could be any other type of injury. So in the Tom Brady lawsuit against the NFL, the actions of the NFL, the action being them suspending him for deflating footballs and not cooperating with the investigation, that action, he claimed, caused him injury. It caused him to be suspended, which cost him four games pay. So because the action caused him injury, he has a claim to have standing in the case. Now, that's not the only thing that you have to show to have standing. You also have to show that the courts themselves have the power to make a ruling over the issue. In other words, that your issue falls within one of those six guidelines that we talked about, a rule or regulation exceeding the scope of authority of the organization, the rule violates the Constitution, federal law, uh, the rule is arbitrary and capricious, the rule might violate public policy, or that the organization is breaking its own rule. So you'd have to show that as a means to get standing and you also have to prove that you are the directly affected party or the party of interest. Here, with that Tom Brady lawsuit, Tom Brady is being directly affected by the rules and regulations that the NFL is putting forward by these potentially arbitrary and capricious rules. Though I am a fan of the Patriots and Tom Brady, and I could claim emotional damages because Tom Brady couldn't play and because I was so upset, I am not being directly affected. I am removed from that situation. The other example that I like to give a really drive home, this idea of plaintiff has to be the directly affected individual, is imagine a scenario in high school where you have a child that plays for the soccer team. And the star player on the team, not your child, but the star player on the team is suspended by the school 
because their GPA fell below the 3.0 standard that this school set that stipulates all students have to be above in order to participate in sports. You, as the parent of a different child, cannot file a lawsuit because you do not have standing. You and your child are not being directly affected by that rule because your child is still eligible. The only person being directly affected by the rule is the child who is suspended. So that child has standing, and he can bring an action against the school claiming that that policy is arbitrary and capricious, or claiming if it does that the rule might violate constitutional rights or federal laws or whatever, but you cannot. The only exception is if that child is under the age of 18, then legally they cannot bring action, so their parents can bring action or their legal guardian can bring action on the child's behalf. So there are limited instances where the courts will get involved in disputes within organizations, specifically within sports. There are six instances where they will. In order for that lawsuit then to go forward, you have to establish that you are being directly affected by that action and that you have been caused harm by that action. Now, what do we look for in these court cases? What are we looking for as an outcome? When we talk about negligence lawsuits, the outcome is oftentimes money or a correction of wrongdoing. But most of these kind of federal legal lawsuits or constitutional lawsuits, we're looking for something a little bit different. We might be seeking monetary damage, but oftentimes we just want to have the ability to play. So we see the Tom Brady lawsuit, he didn't want all the money, he just wanted the ability to play. And in terms of legal talk, we refer to this as restraining orders and injunctions. So the process goes something like this. Tom Brady is suspended four games, and he wants to argue, or he believes, and his lawyers believe, that the ruling was arbitrary and capricious, and that the NFL was violating its own policies. So they file a lawsuit in federal court, and they ask for judicial review. They ask the courts to get involved and decide whether the NFL is breaking its own policies or own rules, and decide if the punishment is arbitrary and capricious. The process for a lawsuit takes a long time. If you remember that, that was over a year before we actually had a resolution in the courts. Well, in the meantime, what do we do? Because Tom Brady has been suspended four games. Do we just suspend him four games, wait for the process to play out, and then when it's over, go back, and if he wins, say, oh, look, you won, I'll give you those four games back. The four games are already gone. You can't give them back. So what we typically ask for initially is a temporary restraining order. A temporary restraining order generally lasts 10 days, and the plaintiff must prove that they will suffer irreparable harm and that money and damages would not be an adequate remedy to the harm that they suffered. In other words, I'm missing those 10 games, and I, you can't go back and give them back to me. You can't give me the ability to play in those games again. Imagine if you're a high school student and you're suspended, you want to challenge the ruling as arbitrary and capricious, well, I might be graduated from high school by the time the court reaches a decision, so I'm no longer even eligible to participate. So the courts will give a temporary restraining order if you're able to show that you might suffer irreparable harm if you are not allowed to continue to participate in that sport. In addition to a temporary restraining order, since they only last temporarily, we can also ask for a preliminary injunction. 
a preliminary injunction is granted prior to trial on the merits of the legal actions or arguments, and it lasts throughout the entire trial process. In other words, instead of just lasting 10 days, it's going to last that entire year that the process is going on. And I'm going to be able to continue to participate in that sport until the court reaches its decision. This is much, much more difficult to get because not only do I have to show that I would suffer irreparable harm that money damages could not be an adequate remedy for, but I also have to show that based off the information, I have a likelihood of success in winning my claim. So I would have to submit a a motion for preliminary injunction. And in that, I would make an argument for why I think I am going to win the case. And if the court believes, just based on my argument, that I have a good likelihood of winning the case, they will grant me a preliminary injunction to make sure that I don't suffer those irreparable harms. If they think you don't have a good chance of winning, then they will not issue that preliminary injunction. And we will go through the whole trial process, the whole process in court before I would be able to go back and play again. Or I would have to serve that whole suspension and still have that wait period before I'm able to go back and play. What happens after the trial? Because we said the preliminary injunction is what happens before the trial up until the end. After the trial, we can have kind of two outcomes that are important for sport. We can have a permanent injunction imposed, which is the same thing as a preliminary, but it's just awarded after the hearing of the case. The permanent injunction just stipulates that I have won the case and now I'm allowed to participate kind of in perpetuity in, in, in relation to that issue. We can also potentially get a specific performance awarded by the court. We talk about this in contract law and we said there's, there's some little caveats here because we can't make someone do something, we can't make someone work for us due to the fact that it violates the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery, but we can make an individual live up to some of the specific language of a contract. So we've established that first thing that we need to have in a lawsuit dealing with federal constitutional laws is we need to have one of those six things stipulated. When we've established that uh, the courts will offer a review of the incidents, we then need to make sure that we have standing. We have the ability to bring the lawsuit forward. If we have standing, an issue at hand is a rule that is in question of being in violation of a constitutional amendment or a federal law. The next thing that we would have to prove is that there's state action on behalf of the organization. And this is the concept that oftentimes very much confuses students or or people even studying constitutional law outside of sports. Let's break down first by starting with the definition and then looking at specific cases that have been decided at the Supreme Court level, which have defined state action within the realm of recreation and sport. So the definition of state action is any action taken directly or indirectly by local, state, or federal government or any of its components or employees who use the color of law to violate an individual's civil rights. As all legal definitions are, there's a lot of parts to it, but let's break this down. Any action taken directly or indirectly by the government. So if the government, if a government agency, if the national parks, which is a government agency, if they do something, there is state action. If a part of the government, the judicial branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch does something, there is state action. 
if an individual who's serving in a role within that branch of government, such as a sheriff who's serving as a member of the executive branch, a mayor serving as a member of the executive branch, a judge serving as a member of the judicial branch, a senator serving as a member of the legislative branch, any of those individuals who are serving a part of the government uh, does something, there is state action. Where it gets more confusing, though, is when we have private individuals that become state actors. But before we get to the, the, the really difficult part, let's first establish why do we even need state action in the first place? And I think if you remember this, why we need state action, it will help you in remembering the different aspects of private entities becoming state actors. And the reason that we need to have state action in order for us to have a claim in a federal or constitutional lawsuit is because the U.S. Constitution, at its very core, is designed to protect individual rights and freedoms from the government. It is not designed to protect individual rights and freedoms from other individuals. Let me re-say that. The Constitution is designed to protect individuals from the government, not from private individuals. And that's why I talk just briefly about the history of the Constitution, because what I said really drives this point home. The reason that we have the First Amendment is because before the Revolutionary War, the government was taking away the rights of the individuals to speak freely, to protest, to practice any religion they wanted. The government was dictating those things, and the citizens didn't like it. That's one of the reasons we fight the Revolutionary War. And so when the United States decided that they'd be stronger as a union rather than a bunch of individual states, they also decided that we need to have protections for the individuals. Those are the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution and most of the amendments that then follow. The one single amendment that we have that is designed to protect the rights of private individuals from other private individuals is an amendment we already mentioned, the 13th. The 13th Amendment prohibits slavery, which that in and of itself protects individuals from other individuals, the act of one group enslaving another. Besides that, the constitutional amendments are designed to protect your individual rights from the government. With state action, if the government does something, then there's state action. So we need to first establish that the government is actually doing something in order for the Constitution to directly apply. Now, as I mentioned, the challenge in understanding state action is not when we're talking specifically about local, state, or federal government. The challenge is when we're talking about private entities, because in certain circumstances, a private entity does have to follow the Constitution, and in other circumstances, a private entity does not. And when we say entity, I'm referring to private organizations. So what are the instances where these private organizations do have to follow the Constitution or abide by constitutional amendments? Well, there's two theories that we talk about that help us to identify if a organization or a group is a state actor. The first is what we call the public function theory. And the second is what we call the nexus or the entanglement theory. So the public function theory stipulates if you're a private actor, but you're performing a function that has traditionally been employed by the government, then you become a state actor. 
So if I'm a private organization, but I'm fulfilling a role that the government typically should fulfill, then I become a state actor. Let's talk about local government. One of the roles of local government is trash collection. So that is a function of the local government. Imagine if the local government, instead of employing their own individuals and paying their own individuals to go pick up trash, they contract a private trash company. And they say, well, we'll pay you money to go and perform the service of trash collection for us. In that case, the trash collectors that are private are now fulfilling a public role. So they would, under the public function theory, be state actors, which means that they would have to abide by federal and constitutional law. Another example, which is maybe even more common nowadays and in a bigger point of conversation, is these groups or these organizations that are private prisons. Private prisons are fulfilling a role that's generally reserved for our government. So if I am the United States, and instead of spending my own taxpayers' money to formulate a correctional facility and to employ uh, correctional officers and to upkeep it and maintain it, instead of doing it myself, I say, well, I'm just going to pay another company to deal with the prison. Then that other company, even though it's private, because they're performing a public function, they become a state actor. They have to abide by federal law. They have to abide by the Constitution. But public function isn't the only way someone can become a state actor if they're a private organization. You can also have what's known as the nexus or the entanglement theory. The nexus or entanglement theory looks at the intertwining of a private organization with a federal, state, or local portion of the government. So the nexus theory examines whether the state's involvement or entanglement with a private actor's conduct is significant to transform a private organization into a state actor. The easiest way to think about this is if a private organization is given governmental resources, then they are considered entangled with the government and they become a state actor. This can be done through multiple ways. Money is a big one. If I take tax money and I give that money to a private organization, then that private organization is a state actor. Or, which happens a lot in sports, what if I take a government-owned facility, like a park or a football stadium, and I allow a private company to come in and use that facility? Or what if I'm a private school and I don't receive any tax money, I don't receive any support from the government, but I use the public school buses to bus kids to my school. I'm using a government resource, therefore I'm entangled with that governmental entity as a private organization, and that entanglement makes me a state actor, therefore I have to abide by federal and constitutional law. Let's really kind of try to drive this home by looking at three different examples. This first example is Evans v. Newton, which was a 1966 Supreme Court case. And the overarching question was whether a private park was a state actor. A little bit of background here. Back post-Civil War, there was a 
ex-Confederate soldier, an individual who became a U.S. senator named Augustus Bacon, who lived in Georgia. As part of his will, he left money to establish a park for the, quote, sole and unending use, benefit, and enjoyment of white women, white girls, and white boys, and white children, end quote. As a result, after he passed away, money went into a private trust, the land was secured, and a park was built. In 1966, though, uh, as part of the civil rights movement, we saw a lot of different action. The idea of having a park that only could benefit white individuals and excluded minorities became a huge issue. And an individual sued and said, you cannot keep one group of people from coming in and actually engaging and using this park. Because under the 5th and the 14th Amendment, it stipulates that we cannot create rules or laws that treat individuals differently. Now, there's a lot of different subsections of that that we get into in a later podcast. But that's the basic elements of that section of what's called the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The idea that we cannot treat different groups of people differently just because of that difference that they hold. Well, Bacon put into place in his will that this was only to be used by whites. And so what was happening is in this private park, we were treating individuals differently. But the question initially isn't, whether that's in violation of the 14th Amendment, the question initially is, can we even bring this lawsuit? Because is a private park even a state actor? And what the courts finally concluded is that regardless of the fact that it was a quote-unquote private park, because the park was serving an essential municipal function, in other words, the role of providing places for individuals to gather and enjoy nature the role of having parks is a function that is generally reserved for the government. In this case, the local government. And since that is a role that's normally reserved for the local government, even though this was a private organization, it was still fulfilling that role or that function. And thus, due to the public function theory, they classified the private park as a state actor, which meant that that private park had to uphold and abide by the Constitution. So the private park was not allowed to make rules, despite the fact that it was in someone's will, they were not allowed to make and stipulate rules that treated individuals differently based on their race. The public function theory here was found to make private parks into state actors. Again, there are other lawsuits that reaffirm this, and there's other lawsuits that really define what a private park is, because in a sport law class, I oftentimes will get students saying, well, what about a, a place like Augusta National, which Augusta is a private golf course who for years had rules that stipulated that women could not be members and had rules that stipulated that minorities cannot be members, specifically uh, black individuals cannot be members. And the courts have differentiated between a park and a golf course. And the key thing within this Evans lawsuit was the, that wording in the will that I read you that stated specifically that the park was for a sole and unending use, benefit, and enjoyment of 
white individuals, which is a function. Having parks that are available for the enjoyment of individuals is a function of the federal government or the state government, or in this case, the local government. Having golf courses is not a function of the government. Therefore, golf courses actually aren't considered state actors, and therefore, they do not have to abide by constitution or federal laws. So there are those little caveats, but in general, this uh, case establishes that private parks are state actors and therefore cannot limit an individual's ability to come in because it's a violation of the 14th Amendment. Another lawsuit that is a great example of when there is and is not state action is San Francisco Arts and Athletics Inc. versus the USOC. This is a lawsuit that was tried in the late 1980s, 1987 to be specific. Again, the question became in the end, is the USOC a state actor or not? The brief background on this lawsuit. In this one, the San Francisco Arts and Athletics Inc. wanted to hold an event using the term Olympics, which the USOC held the legal rights to use. San Francisco Arts and Athletics wanted to start an event called the Gay Olympic Games. The USOC, who held the rights to that name, held the trademark over that name Olympics, said that the San Francisco Art and Athletics could not use that term, and they banned them from using it. The uh, San Francisco Arts and Athletics then sued the USOC and said that you as a governmental organization, which they claim, you as a governmental organization, you as a state actor, cannot deny me the ability to use this name because I have freedom of speech rights. I am protected by the First Amendment. They also claim to be in violation of other constitutional amendments as well, specifically the Fifth Amendment. But the general argument you can see, San Francisco Arts and Athletics wants to be able to use this name. The USOC denies them usage. San Francisco Arts and Athletics sues the USOC claiming a violation of the Constitution. San Francisco Arts and Athletics has standing. They're being directly affected by the USOC. We're dealing with an issue of a rule challenging the Constitution. So the case is heard. And it goes again all the way up to the Supreme Court. But in this case, unlike our previous case of Evans v. Newton, in this case... The Supreme Court ruled that the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, is not a state actor. The real question here dealt with the government's charter. Because the way the USOC works is the federal government actually granted the USOC a charter to operate. And the San Francisco Art and Athletics claimed that that charter made them a state actor. But it is still a private organization. The USOC doesn't serve a public function. It's not replacing a portion of the government and doing something that the government normally would do. The federal government doesn't offer any regulations over sports. The federal government does not oversee our Olympic sports. That argument of the public function completely falls. The next argument you could think of is the nexus or entanglement theory argument, stipulating that the USOC, because it receives money or resources from the federal government is a state actor. The problem with that argument is the USOC does not receive any money from our federal government or even our state governments. 
unlike other countries who receive a large amount of funding from the federal government for Olympic sports, ours does not. The USOC is entirely privately funded, funded through sponsorship deals primarily, and also receiving uh, funding through the International Olympic Committee or the IOC. And so what they ruled is that the fact that Congress granted it a corporate charter does not make it a government agent. And moreover, Congress's intent to help the USOC obtain funding, though they help them attain funding, they do not give them funding, and therefore it does not change the fact that they are a private entity. Nor does the USOC perform any function that are traditionally exclusively held by the government, and so the USOC is private, therefore they are not state actors, and they do not have to abide by federal or constitutional law, meaning the USOC had the right to deny San Francisco Arts and Athletics from using the term Olympic in their event called the Gay Olympic Games. Because they were not state actors, they didn't have to abide by the First and the Fifth Amendments. Finally, the last example, and, and maybe one of the most well-known and discussed examples of state action, is NCA v. Tarkanian, which was a case that was tried in 1988. Again, the question in this case became, is the NCA a state actor? Little bit of background on this case. Jerry Tarkanian was a famous coach of the UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas basketball team, team that he led to national championships, that had some of the best players of his era on it. One of the challenges of being an extremely successful men's basketball team is oftentimes the way you get the really good players is through violating NCAA policies or violating conference or uh, policies, things that make players ineligible. One of the stipulations on coaches is that they have to abide by NSA policies, and that if they're found in violation of those policies, then the school itself can be punished. Well, a number of players were receiving impermissible benefits, were receiving things that classified them as professional athletes, therefore meaning they couldn't play. This was found out by the NCAA, and the NCAA went to UNLV, and they said, if you do not punish Jerry Tarkanian and suspend him or fire him, then we are going to punish your university. They basically gave them an ultimatum. The NCAA did not issue a punishment specifically on Tarkanian. They talked to UNLV. UNLV then acts and disciplined Tarkanian. Tarkanian then files a lawsuit claiming that his Fifth Amendment rights, his right to due process more specifically, had been violated by the NCA. So he sues the NCA. And this case, again, goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And before they deal with the Fifth Amendment claim of due process, as we've said, you first have to establish that this private organization of the NCA is a state actor. And what the NCA ended up deciding, or what they ended up ruling, is that the NCA does not perform a function that is typically held by the government. Again, similar to the USOC, the NCAA is regulating college sports, just like the USOC is regulating Olympic sports in the US. Regulations of sports is not something that the federal government typically does. Therefore, they're not a public organization through the public function theory. Tarkanian then argued, or as part of this argued also, that the NCAA was receiving money directly from schools, or that they were receiving federal funding 
Therefore, through the nexus or entanglement theory, the NCAA would be a state actor because they're entangled with that federal resource. However, the courts disagreed with this argument. What they said was that since they are not receiving the money directly from the government, because there are multiple steps away, the money first goes to the institution, maybe through loans that students receive, maybe through direct financial assistance from the federal or state government, and then the NCA charges its members' institutions a fee, an annual fee that they have to pay. The institution then takes that money that they've received from the government, and they give that to the NCA. So because there's a middleman, they said that they are too far removed from the source of governmental resources to be directly entangled with the government. As a result, the entanglement slash nexus theory also falls on its head. The final point that they make, and this is a really key one, is that the NCAA is not the organization that's directly punishing student-athletes. The NCA makes recommendations to the schools and the conferences, and then the school and the conference have to follow through. The only thing that the NCA punishes is the institution itself. They might take away scholarships, for example, from an athletic team. That's a punishment to the institution. They're not saying that this individual person loses a scholarship. They're saying that this basketball program loses a scholarship, and then it's on the basketball program to determine which individual is going to not have a scholarship the following year. So... The act of punishing college students is something that is a governmental action. But the NCAA very smartly doesn't directly punish them. They let the conferences punish them and the schools punish them. The NCAA only makes recommendations for what those punishments will be. And if those recommendations aren't lived up to, then they punish the institution, not the individual. And that little difference is enough, along with that little difference in the nexus theory, according to the Supreme Court and the NCAA Tarkanian decision, is enough to make the NCAA a private entity and not a state actor, meaning the NCAA does not have to abide by the Constitution. They don't have to guarantee due process. They don't have to acknowledge freedom of speech. They can punish employees, for example, for saying something or acting in a certain way, in violation of the First Amendment, if they want to, they can do that because they are a private entity, just like the USOC is. So there you have it, a brief look into the Constitution and the legal elements that are required to take a claim of a constitutional violation to court. Hopefully, after listening to this podcast, you have a better understanding of not only when the court will get involved in sport organization disputes, but also why. Remember, the majority of amendments to the Constitution are designed to protect the people of our country from the government, not from other people or even from private organizations. In the rare cases in which courts will get involved, though, hopefully this podcast has helped you understand that the plaintiff must have standing and that with claims that the sport organization has violated the Constitution or federal laws, the defendant must be a state actor. If you have any questions about what it takes to be a state actor or any of the lawsuits that we discussed today, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us to stay up to date on new podcasts and get updates on what is to come. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.